Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. Dr. Mark Gerblum discusses the psychological impact of quarantine and isolation and offers GP's guidance in what to look for and manage if necessary. Dr. Gerblum, please tell us about yourself. Uh, hi, David. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, so I'm uh, an advanced trainee in child and adolescent uh, mental health. Um, working in psychiatry at the Alfred Hospital. Uh, alongside my uh, clinical work, I've got a research interest in isolation and confinement psychology. Um, and I've done some work with the Australasian Society of Aerospace Medicine on human uh, spaceflight and how people deal with long-term confinement in extreme environments like um, space and Antarctica. Yeah, this is quite relevant. It's become quite relevant uh, during the recent COVID pandemic. Well, we're focusing on the psychological consequences of isolation and quarantine. So, Mark, what makes isolation and quarantine stressful? Well, there's a couple of, I guess, overriding principles that, that happen with long-term confinement of people. Um, the, the biggest one is that anything that's stressful um, becomes more stressful over time. Mm -hmm. uh, an example I often use is if you live with a housemate or you have a person that you work with who has a, a small uh, thing that they do that you find a little bit irritating, but being constantly exposed to that over time, it becomes more and more challenging to deal with. The other thing is that our ways of coping with these sorts of things become less effective over time. So if you're always using the same way of managing, it'll, it'll be less effective. Um, the longer you're using it. So the challenge between with the challenge of isolation and or being in quarantine is that you're stuck in uh, that place and you're not able to change your exposure to that stress by leaving the area. So mm -hmm. if you work with if you work with someone with a you know something you know they say they chew with their mouth open, uh, you know when you walk out of the room you're no longer exposed to that. But when you're quarantined with people and they have habits or there are things about the environment that you find difficult, you can't get away. And so that principle of the stress building up um, continues to have an effect on you. And I was saying the, the coping mechanisms become less effective. So over time, being in that environment has more and more of an effect on you. The other side of it is that the brain has, I mean, you know, the human body has many needs, but one of the things that the brain really needs is variation in experience. Uh, so, you know, if you eat the same thing for dinner every night, uh, you know, after a while, even if it was your favorite food, you're going to like it less. <laughs> and, you know, if you have a favorite piece of art, but you're staring at it constantly, it becomes less interesting. And so yeah. the static environment is, um, becomes more and more stressful in quarantine. And does that partly explain why our coping strategies fail over time? Or are there other reasons, uh, such as poor coping strategies to start with? Or is it something that just happens over time that it loses its effect and why? So it's really all of the above. So, you know, for, for one, it's, you know, we usually have, most people have a, a few coping strategies that they use to manage, you know, stresses in life. You know, they, they're, and they're the ones that they've developed for their normal everyday life and the stresses they run into. So whether those coping mechanisms are sufficient for a, a much more stressful experience like being in quarantine. Like you said, 
many of us have some coping strategies that may not be the best. You know, if I'm going through a tub of ice cream over the weekend, um, <laughs> if I'm trying to do that every day, it's probably not going to be very good for me. So it's definitely a combination of the two. So in a f next question sounds odd, but I think you should take it at both the psychological, mental and physical level. Is confinement bad for your health? Look, it depends how you define bad for your health. Uh, because it's, I mean, at its basis, it's a very stressful experience, uh, or it can be a very stress, stressful experience, depending on you know, how long you're confined and what the context is. If it's a, you know, you've been asked to go home to quarantine, to, to, to self-isolate, or if, say, as we had in Melbourne, you, you spend you know, 100 plus days uh, with limited uh, ability to leave the house. Uh, stressful things aren't necessarily bad for your health, but they can be. There's that association between stress and cortisol levels and all the physical health problems that can develop over time. So that's certainly true that that's not, you know, it's not good for you to be exposed to long-term um, high levels of stress, mm -hmm. um, both physically and psychologically. There's the risk uh, of trauma. People who uh, have been confined, who feel helpless in their situation are more likely to develop um, say like a PTSD uh, or have, you know, in the, what, in the long-term PTSD or in the short-term just increase in anxiety symptoms. Mm -hmm. in, in contrast though, a stressful experience can be good for you. Uh, and this is what you, you see a lot of when you study, say people, so, you know, you could think of a stressful experience as sitting exam, but you could also think about say summiting Everest uh, or, you know, crossing the Antarctic. And these are extremely ex stressful and difficult experiences, but people come out the end actually having improved their mental health by having surmounted uh, that challenge. And so confinement can do the same. So people have gone into confinement, been challenged by having to develop new coping mechanisms or mm -hmm. uh, develop their relationships with people that they're confined with in different ways. And have come out on the other end, actually improve, actually, you know, improving their self-agency. Uh, Mark, just actually coming back to the Australian context, um, have you had any dealings with uh, any of the return travellers in our quarantine facilities? And what sorts of issues are you actually seeing in them? So I, I haven't personally had any uh, contact with them. Um, I have spoken with um, several of the doctors uh, running hotel quarantine. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I mean, this is, you know, just sort of through casual discussions. And the best way to describe it is if you have mental health challenges already, um, mm -hmm. or if you have stressful experiences already, and then on top of whatever's going on for you, you add quarantine, isolation, you know, the increasing interpersonal conflict of being in a hotel room with someone over, you know, over, over a couple of weeks, it, it triggers everything to be more intensive. So mm -hmm. depressive episodes or risk of exacerbation of prior mental health issues. Some of the main things that I've, I've heard of colloquially through, uh, through colleagues. Look, you've just mentioned uh, a group of people who may find confinement challenging and uh, those with mental health uh, issues. I wonder if there are other groups in my mind, there are such weird groups as, you know, the, um, uh, regular recreational drug users or the people who use alcohol uh, daily probably too much 
and then suddenly go into a situation when they can't do it. Um, are there other people, at, if you like, at risk of finding confinement too challenging? Yeah, the, so the research is only just starting to come in um, regarding sort of at-risk populations. Uh, I guess there's two ways to look at it. There's the, from f the first principles approach is to think about personality types. Um, mm -hmm. So that's usually assessed using um, the big five or the oceans um, series of uh, personality traits. You know, and that, that sort of divides personality into five major categories of uh, neuroticism, agreeableness, uh, openness, introversion, extroversion, and conscientiousness. And people, and people will rate depending on each of these dimensions. Uh, neurotic, uh, the neurotic personality type is a, a, an assessment of your resilience to stress. So mm -hmm. people who are more likely to reach that threshold of feeling um, anxious and stressed are going to find it more difficult. And people who rate highly on agreeableness, openness, and conscientiousness, which really relates to interpersonal living skills, conflict resolution skills, um, ability to adapt to a, an unusual situation, are types of people that generally do okay. The other side is, as we've already been talking about, coping mechanisms. If you have lots of different ways of coping with stress, you go for runs, but do a bit of art, but watch some TV or read, a, you know, you're happy to read a book, then you're going to do better than the person who only runs, doesn't like to read, isn't interested in art. That person's going to find mm -hmm. it much harder to adapt. And that ability to learn new skills is really important. So that's the sort of first principles way of thinking about it. In the, the sort of emerging research in terms of specific groups, uh, the ones who can't is those with a past history of mental health probably one of the main, the main groups because you already have a predisposition um, to, I guess, I guess there's a, a, a less resilience in terms of managing highly stressful situations and especially mm -hmm. chronic stressful situations. Uh, and then groups who are specifically exposed. So uh, you have, um, there's a, a small literature about the workers, you know, the people working in hospital quarantine, especially the non-healthcare workers who haven't gotten as much training in managing stressful situations, the, the lives or livelihood uh, dilemma. Uh, you know, this is my job, I need to work, but going to work is dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, then uh, other groups are obviously healthcare workers have been in, there was one study in China that showed a huge 43% you know, increase in depressive symptoms. Uh, amongst healthcare workers in hotel quarantine. So that, I thought that was quite that's concerning. Huge. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, and look, it's only the one study. Uh, so, you know, I certainly wouldn't be entirely reliant on it, but even if it's sort of indicating a direction, that's pretty concerning. And uh, there's also risks for people in rural areas, students, those with poor physical health, um, young and young people and those who are, and females. Now, some of that research, again, it's very preliminary research. For instance, one of the big studies was 80% of the respondents were female. So mm -hmm. it, it, even, even with analysis, it did seem that those results were indicating in that direction. But yeah, at this stage, it's all pretty early. So when you're put through a stressful period, how important is it for the individual to, to be productive, to be doing something constructive or useful or helpful? 
Well, that depends on the person. Productivity is useful because it, it contributes meaning to that person's life and to that time. When I think back on the last week, if it's important, me, if it's important to me that I've been productive, uh, mm-hmm. to feel like I've used that time well, then it's important to be productive. But it, it's going to be different for every person. There, there's going to be some people who, well, I binge watched three seasons of uh, Old Family Guy. You know, I went back and watched one of my favorite TV shows, and that was enough meaning for me. Right. So for another person, it, they might need to see that they're growing their business. Uh, so it's 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 very in, individually defined of what what makes time meaningful. I talk to people about having a balance of goal-oriented and non-goal-oriented activities to, to fill that time. So the non-goal-oriented are things that you know, allow the person just to relax. They're not necessarily focusing on a goal. You know, so that, that might, you know, for me, that might be watching some TV shows as, you know, time yep. to unwind or read a book. Uh, but then goal-oriented, you know, being productive, learning a skill, doing something that I feel like, well, I've, I've, gain something from this time i've invested yes. and gained from it it's having a balance of those two so in, in a way if you go if you know you're going to go into a quarantine situation and knowing that these sorts of activities both goal oriented and non-goal oriented may be helpful how do you help somebody who is going to come back to australia and undergo quarantine prepare themselves for that experience yeah, the, the, I guess the most important thing is to preempt as much as possible uh, what they're going to need. If I were talking with someone, and now I've actually read an article about this with my PhD supervisor, um, mm-hmm. because of our experience of isolation and confinement, we, and we wrote this article in, in J Insight. And it, when you read over the article, it all seems so simple. There's, there's nothing you know, amazingly novel that, that we're you know it's things like make sure you build a, a good routine uh, to, you know to your day defining some different parts of the day having things you know coping mechanisms things to do uh, whether it's you know you have your laptop and you might bring a hard drive full of movies in case the internet happens to be um, mm-hmm. the internet connection isn't very good have a few books have a mm-hmm. few different projects so you know again goal-oriented and non-goal-oriented hobbies that you can spend your time on. Get resistance bands to so you can, even if you're in a small space, you can do, still do some sort of a workout. None of these things are uh, rocket science, uh, but it, it's about that preparation and thinking forward about what am I going to need if I'm going to be stuck in this room? I'm going to want to be interested in, you know, I've got things to spend my time on. Um, and the other big thing, of course, is social connection. So, you know, perhaps uh, scheduling times that you're going to have regular con- conversations with people in your life, making sure you continue to feel connected to people outside. Because that's probably the one thing we haven't spoken about so far. Is the, mm-hmm. you know, there's the internal, the me keeping myself busy. And then the other is the social connectedness, which is really crucial. Well, Mark, as you said, it's not rocket science, but they all make sense, doesn't it? Yeah, and I guess it's the putting it together that I guess going right back to the start in, in normal life, you have the, the space to realize it a little later. Oh, I'm feeling a bit stressed. I'll go, maybe I should go and do something. Whereas when you're in confinement, you don't have that space because the stress builds up consistently. And if you're not prepared, you may not have access to 
the things that could help you. That's a good point. Do you give any advice on sleep patterns and the things not to do? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not different to the regular sleep advice I'd give generally in, in clinic, you know, um, you know, the principles of sleep hygiene. Certainly a problem we've seen lots of in, you know, during the, the Melbourne lockdown is, you know, oh, well, I don't have to go to school or I don't have to go to work tomorrow. So I'll stay that, stay up that little bit later and then a little yep. bit later the next night. And then suddenly someone's going to bed at five o'clock in the morning and waking up at three in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. The impact on your circadian rhythm, which then has an impact on mood and risk of depression is pretty significant. So maintaining a healthy sleep routine as much as possible you know, using normal approaches like exercise earlier in the day, avoiding caffeine in the evening um, to help yourself get that sleep. But it's a good, one of the useful things about sleep is that it's a very good measure of how you're doing. Uh, I tend to use sleep almost like CRP, um, you know, doing a CRP on a a blood test when I I speak to someone because sleep is the first thing to sort of indicate whether then whether a person's mental health might be you know if there's a change in their normal habit of sleep that something might not be doing as well uh, so that sleep is now our canary in the coal mine is it yeah that's a good way to put it yeah so is it something that gps should be mindful of say if um, a patient comes to see us and told us that they've recently come out from hotel quarantine uh, would one of the early questions be how's your sleep yeah i think that'd be a very good question uh it's i would often end up asking that question early into any of my assessments because mm-hmm. uh, it gives you that good sort of as you said the canary in the in the coal mine assessment of how things have been going recently if someone came out of quarantine and said oh, I'm, I'm really struggling to sleep uh even now that i've you know, say I've been home for a week or two and I'm still really struggling with sleep and I didn't struggle previously, that -hmm. would be more concerning to me than someone who wasn't sleeping very well while they were in quarantine, but now they've come home and after a few days, it's all settled down. What else would you look for, say, in a patient who's now sitting opposite me in a consulting room and just come out from quarantine? Uh, What other things should I be assessing? The easiest way to think about it is you, you, the symptoms you'd expect in anxiety and depression, mm-hmm. are probably some of the most common. Looking a bit more carefully, there's, and, and this I take from some of the isolation uh, psychology work where the things they put, you know, the Russians call asthenia in spaceflight or in Antarctica, they talk about long eye syndrome or the Antarctic stare, which is. Um, <laughs> I guess a kind of a depressive syndrome that's kind of built up with this sort of exposure to a very static environment for a long period of time. And it's going to be exacerbated by interpersonal uh, conflict. So irritability, insomnia, absent-mindedness. There is some some people can have sort of hypnotic or um, fuge kind of symptoms. So it's hard for them to to concentrate or they catch themselves just staring off into the distance for long periods of time. Yeah, the most common things I'd I'd expect immediately after such an experience. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, but most of that should uh, settle down fairly quickly after an experience like that. And that's when you start to notice the, I guess, the red flags for um, has this experience, you know, when we're talking before about the experience can be a, a, 
beneficial one or a detrimental one. Mm-hmm. It's that recovery phase. If a person, you know, after a week or two, they're kind of back to normal, I'd probably kind of see them a bit more commonly if they if they had been struggling. You know, then you can relax. And then if you're noticing that their social function hasn't really returned to normal, their occupational function continues to be affected, their sleep is still bad, they're having depressive or you know, depressive experiences during during the day, despite all the normal things having returned to their life. Um, they're the main things I'd be I'd be looking out for. The other thing would be early trauma symptoms. So if someone was uh, and, and usually this would come out, this would appear later, but reliving or you know find it very hard to let go of some of those experiences that they had. You know, I can't sleep because I keep thinking of those nights I spent in the hotel. Those sorts mm-hmm. of experiences would also be a red flag for me. Now, presumably, most people would, over a fairly short period of time, get better. Um, would you be recommending that GPs uh, seek psychological uh, counseling and help to patients who are continuing to relieve experiences do what should we do with them watch them treat them refer them I think the the first the first step is that triage step for if someone if someone comes to the GP clinic and says I'm you know and it's been a few days or a week experience and they're saying I'm, I'm finding it hard to let go of the experience and I'm, I'm still sort of processing it mm-hmm. and it'd be important to take a you know a good mental health history from this person because how people have coped with difficult experiences historically is quite useful for understanding how they're going to experience it this time so a question I've used is have you ever broken your leg and been stuck at home for a long period of time how did you cope with that so that's mm-hmm. that's quite useful to be predictive about how things are going to go i think and then the other side is obviously the, the red flags if someone is quite obviously depressed or suicidal or you know really struggling with multiple aspects of their normal life i'd be more inclined to refer on at the extreme to the cat team but more likely you know a mental health care plan and getting them to see a psychologist it's always the the black and white ones are the easy ones it's always the yes. people in the gray in the middle that are more difficult and then i guess i'm not a huge fan of the dsm but one thing i do like about it is that it talks about function uh, across the board so a lot of the the diagnostic categories are talking about um, is this impacting on the person's function i think that's a useful principle to think about if someone says to me that they're reliving experiences from quarantine from their time in hotel quarantine and it's only been a week i mean firstly how distressing is that for them Mm. how much is it impacting them are they still able to relate to people around them or go to work Uh, are they enjoying time with their kids if if they're not in you know all those things are being impacted i'd be more likely to refer them on to a psychologist on the other side the other i guess the lighter shade of gray is if those things are perhaps unpleasant experiences, but manageable. And then it might be simply encouraging them to take up some of those good uh, routines in their life. Start to, you know, giving them some simple advice, such as, you know, good sleep cycles, re-engaging in some activities, a bit of brainstorming around things that usually do give them pleasure or um, that would give them meaning and, and seeing how they go over those first, you know, several weeks. And then if they're continuing to struggle with that transition, then referring them on. It is always a balance. Obviously, if someone's going to need to be referred, it's better to refer them early uh, to to get them that support as soon as possible. But 
I guess that's where in that gray area, the judgment the, you know, in the situation comes in. Mark, thank you for that. It's uh, all these are within uh, the GP skill sets and, and what you've said highlights the fact that we just need to be really watchful in giving them the space to see where they go before we um, further assess and manage. But it's really important to know that such a group of people exists and have been through a possibly stressful situation. I, I wonder if there's any anything about the quarantine uh, issues that I might have missed. I think we've covered quite a lot. The one thing I was, I was that just came to mind is obviously the the antidepressant question can come up. Yeah. And generally, in that early period, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be inclined to prescribe an antidepressant. Um, okay. You know, obviously depending on the acuity of the way the person's presenting, but given that it's going to take you know several weeks for a medication like that to work it's quite possible that those early symptoms will have resolved by the time you know such a, the antidepressants kicked in you know if someone's really struggling i might consider using a very short-term anxiolytic and seeing if that, that would help them get through that early period but for the most part uh i think this is more about psychological and lifestyle intervention more than a medication question mm-hmm. Um, that might be quite different if you're managing someone who is in quarantine and is having to manage quarantine ongoing. Um, so I've, I've worked with a couple of people through through the long period of isolation when they're constantly, you know, when they might have limited ability to manage the stress that they're going through and the, the, those stresses are not going away. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might have a person who previously has never really needed medication, but, well, you know, on that sort of the... The balance of stress going in and coping mechanisms going out this in to manage that situational stressor it might be appropriate for that period of time mark have we ever experienced the need to admit uh, any returned travelers for psychological or mental uh, intensive therapy in the hospital situation I haven't personally had any um, experience with that. Look, some some of the conversations I've had with people may have, I, I'm trying to remember, may have suggested that it's it's quite possible, but I, I don't know for sure. Good. We just like to think that uh, we haven't really pushed people right off the edge with this experience. Uh, so I, I, I do know that the the mental health system has been called to provide advice through, you know, through through this whole period. Um, so there certainly has been that need for specialty input, but whether that's gotten to the point of actually you know, transferring someone to a mental health uh, ward, I'm not sure. And, and that would of course be the sort of the end of the bell curve in terms of if you arrive in hotel quarantine with some significant previous mental health history, it's possible, but that's not gonna be most people. Do you have any final messages for our GP listeners, Mark? I don't think so. <laughs> so I think we've, look, I think we've been fairly comprehensive in thinking about the, the aspects of coping. The article we, we wrote in MJ Insight is a quite a useful, um, I guess, just sort of some handy hints that can be, and we wrote it for the general population because as I was saying before, it's really simple. The, the answers are quite simple. It's putting them together that requires a little bit of thinking. So. Um, and, and certainly there's a lot of other resources than our one. So, yeah, I guess having a couple of those just at the ready um, will make a 
massive difference for most people. Uh, I have a couple of people I've collaborated with, um, specifically Professor Kim Norris from the Australian Antarctic Division uh, wrote a, a great article about returning from isolation. She helps people who winter over in Antarctica and the return to normal life can be as difficult um, as, as the experience of isolation itself. So she wrote a fantastic article about that, that, it, that might be useful. Marco, thank you for the time you've given us today. It's been really interesting talking to you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much, David. And you have a very good day. You too. Take care. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that Health Ed has put together for you. Health Ed webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au.